John Newton, a former slave trader who became a born-again Christian and a writer of numerous hymns, such as Amazing Grace, said to a friend a couple years before his death, when he was losing his eyesight, he said this, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and to Satan. I can heartily join with the Apostle Paul and acknowledge that by the grace of God, I am what I am, end quote. You know, God's amazing grace is one of the things that we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue on in our introduction to Revelation. Turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we're looking at ten introductory elements that I believe are very essential for us to understand the book of Revelation. Thus far, we've seen the first six in just two verses. So we saw those last time. We saw its appropriate title, its ultimate source, its specific recipients, its prophetic character, its angelic delivery, and its human author. This morning, as we continue on in the introduction of Revelation, we're going to be looking at the next three. The seventh introductory element of the book of Revelation is its promised blessing. Its promised blessing. Look with me at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. For the time is near. As I said last time, this is the only book in the Bible that begins and ends with a promise of blessing to those who listen to it being read, those who hear it being explained, and those who then respond to it by keeping the words of the prophecy or the prophetic message of this book. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, is the other blessedness that has to do with this very thing. Revelation 22, 7 says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The word blessed literally means happy, fortunate, blissful. But this is not a superficial happiness that depends on our circumstances. This promised blessing is a God-given happiness, a supernatural joy and peace and contentment that is completely untouched by the ever-changing circumstances of life. When we are doing what God has called us to do in reading and hearing and applying these truths and being obedient to these things in our life, 
God gives us a supernatural joy that is unshakable. Listening to scriptures being read aloud in worship services was a very common practice in the early church that showed the authoritative nature of the Word of God. And that's why we do that. That's why we stand. God's Word is God speaking to us. It is our authority. And so that's what they did. They they read it aloud in worship services since copies of Scripture were scarce because they didn't have copy machines. They had to write all of these things by hand. Very few people had a copy of the Word of God. We have numerous copies of the Word of God. They had very few, and therefore public reading was the only way believers could get God's Word into their hearts and their minds as they listen to it being read. To hear the prophetic message of this book refers to listening intently, to it being explained in order to understand what Jesus is saying here and what he is meaning by what he says. And to keep it means to obey its truths by putting them into practice in both how we live as well as how we view the world from God's perspective as communicated in this book. And as we go through Revelation, to be obedient to the prophetic message, to see what God is revealing to us about Jesus Christ, about the future. It's to have a worldview, to see things as God sees them, and to have that reality impact our lives. So we're not shaken by what's going on in our world, because we know who is in control. And we're living our lives in obedience to it. James 1.22 says, but become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. To hear the word and not do it is to be deluded. We think we are in a certain place and yet we are deluded about that. It's only those who obey what it is that they know that are growing spiritually. Each of these words, reads, hear, keep, are in the present tense in the Greek, indicating that only those of us who do these things continually, by the grace of God in our life, only as we do these things continually, as an ongoing pattern of life, will we receive God's blessing that he has promised here. Let me ask you, are you making the word of God a priority in your daily life? The priority that God calls us to make it. Notice the reason God blesses the readers, the hearers, and the keepers in this prophetic book at the end of verse 3. For the time is near. Now I'm only going to touch on this because last time I covered this in depth. Last time we saw that both 
This phrase, as well as the word soon in verse 1, refers to imminence. Now, again, I know that there's different views on this very thing. This is what I believe that God's Word teaches here. The word imminence means that there's no signs or prophetic events that need to happen before Christ returns to snatch His church from the earth. Now, again, when we get there, we will go through and look at the different views that have to do with that very thing. The coming of Christ could happen at any moment. That's the essence of imminence. He could come at any time. As we saw last time, the church, early church, believed he was going to come in their lifetime. It is the next event on God's prophetic calendar, the next great epic of God's redemptive history. Now, in addition to these two promised blessings to believers, here in verse 3 as well as chapter 22, verse 7, there are five other blessings given in Revelation for a total of seven blessings that we will see as we go through this book. The number seven in Revelation represents fullness and completion. We will see throughout this book many sevens. For example, seven doxologies, seven churches, seven spirits of God, seven golden lampstands, seven angels of the churches represented by seven stars, seven lamps of fire, seven years of judgment, seven seals of judgment, seven horns and seven eyes of the Lamb, sevenfold praise to the Lamb and to God, seven angels before the throne, seven angels with seven trumpets of judgments, seven peals of thunder, seven thousand people killed, seven heads and seven crowns on the dragon, seven heads on the beast of the sea, seven angels and seven plagues, which are the seven bowls of judgment, seven mountains and seven kings. Again, there's all kinds of sevens in this book of Revelation. The number seven is no accident. As we will see as we go through, it's no accident since God rested on the seventh day after creating everything in six literal days. Therefore, since this book is the fullness or the completion of all of God's revelation that He has given to us down through the ages, we come to Revelation, the book of Revelation, which is, again, the completion of all of that. When this history is over, it's the end of everything in regards to this universe. And as we get into chapters 21 and 22, again, we, we see God creating a new heaven and a new earth. Again, all that is ahead in the future. The eighth introductory element of the book of Revelation is its Trinitarian greeting. Its Trinitarian greeting. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you 
and peace. Let's stop there. Here we have the typical aspects found in other letters. As we saw last time, John is identified as the author of Revelation. Even though we saw how this came down to him, he was the human author. The original recipients are the believers in the seven churches of Asia. Again, we're going to discuss that in more detail in verse 11, as well as all of chapters 2 and 3. Then there is the greeting. That's kind of what I want to focus on for a bit. In Greek letters, the standard greeting was simply greetings. If you're writing a letter back in Greek time, you would put your name first. Now we've got to look down at the end to see who the letter is from. They said right at the beginning, this is from John. And then who it's written to. And then greetings. The standard letter was greetings. However, this was Christianized. To reflect the distinctive spiritual benefit that belongs to us as believers. The word grace took the place of greetings. And the word peace, a commonly used Jewish greeting like the Hebrew word shalom, was added to signify the well-being that belongs to those who receive God's grace. Therefore, grace to you and peace became the standard Christian greeting that was often used by the Apostle Paul and Peter, as well as John. These two words, grace and peace, capture the very richness of the Christian faith. It's not just, okay, there we go, grace and peace to you, and we're on. They capture, they're full of meaning. They capture the richness of the Christian faith. The word grace is God's unmerited favor and kindness towards sinners that we cannot earn, we cannot deserve by anything that we are. doesn't make any difference how much talent we have, what kind of looks we have, how handsome, how beautiful, how intelligent we are. It has nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with who we are or any good deeds that we do. Doesn't make any difference if we're going to church all the time, read the Bible all the time, we're giving, we're doing good things, good works. God's grace is His unmerited favor and kindness towards us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is only by God's grace because we as sinners cannot save ourselves. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment before an infinitely 
holy and just God who cannot overlook sin. That's why salvation has to be by His grace, by His unmerited favor. Romans 6.23 states, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word death there is far more than just physical death. It speaks of spiritual and eternal death in a literal lake of fire. But since God is also a very loving and gracious God, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the substitute, our substitute, on the cross. Jesus willingly took upon Himself the holy wrath of God the Father against sin. He paid in full the penalty for sin that we deserve. He took our hell that we might have his heaven. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, God-haters, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Jesus was then buried. Three days later, rose from the dead to prove not only that he is God, but also that the Father had completely accepted his atoning sacrifice for sin once for all time. That's why the whole Jewish sacrificial system was done away. It was destroyed. 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. The whole temple was destroyed. God did away with that. Jesus, his atoning sacrifice is the only way to God. Jesus declared in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, shall not experience eternal punishment, but have eternal life. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God's amazing grace is what enables us as sinners to repent of our sins, to put saving faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. Salvation is only through Him. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Grace is the fountain from which all of the blessings of God flow, not only for salvation, but also for our sanctification as Christians. As believers, we desperately need God's grace moment by moment all throughout our Christian lives to not only grow spiritually, but to live Christ-like lives as opposed to our own selfish prideful selves. We need the grace of God in our daily lives. Therefore, it's significant that the order of these words never varies in the New Testament. When you look in the New Testament, you see it always 
It always says grace, then peace. Grace always precedes peace. This is because peace is the result of our personal experience of God's grace in our life. There can be no peace apart from grace. And this is a twofold peace. First of all, when it says grace to you and peace, the peace that it's talking about is twofold. First of all, it's peace with God. Peace with God. When sinners are reconciled to God by grace through saving faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way we can have peace with a holy, just God who will not overlook sin. It's only when we come by the way He has ordained through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because He poured out His wrath on His Son as our substitute. And when we put our faith in Him alone, when we are in Christ, we have peace with God. We are forgiven all of our sin. We are reconciled to God. We're clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. You see, unbelievers can never have this peace. An unbeliever can never have Peace with God until they are saved. doesn't make any difference what they do. They can go to church. They can believe all kinds of religious things. They can do a bunch of good works. They can be baptized. They can do anything. But all of our righteousness is filthy rags before God until we are saved the wrath of God abides on an unbeliever. There is no peace until they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that is a faith that changes their life. It's not just easy believism or cheap grace. It is a faith that changes them on the inside, that that comes out in a transforming life. So first of all, this twofold peace is a peace with God. Second, it's the peace of God when God's grace is at work in believers' lives. As we fully depend on Him and we are controlled by His Spirit. So the greeting here is grace to you and peace. Let me ask you this morning, are you experiencing both of these? Do you know God's grace in your life? Do you have peace with God? Do you have the peace of God? We see now the source of grace and peace in verses 4 and 5. Look what it says. From the one who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. Now, I'm very aware that some view verse 4 as referring, all of these characteristics refer to Jesus Christ. But in this context, I agree with those who see this as a Trinitarian greeting. Trinitarian in the sense of the triune God is 
talked about here. First, grace and peace come from God the Father who is designated in verse 4 as the one who is and who was and who is to come. This is also said about Jesus Christ because he is God. But this is also an unusual title for God the Father that is used in Revelation at least three other times as we will see as we go through. The phrase, the one who is, alludes to Exodus 3.14 where God said to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. And to text in Isaiah that speak of God as the self-existent one who is the one and only God who is always present with his people. The phrase, and who was, is a reference to God as the eternal one, who has not only always existed in eternity past, but also in eternity present and future, and has always sovereignly ruled and reigned over everything that he has created. For there is no one who is greater than he. Our God does reign. And then the phrase, and who is to come, speaks of God as ruling over the future. Now since the Father and the Son are one in essence, when Christ comes, in a very legitimate sense, the Father comes as well. Again, we will talk about that later in different passages. Second, grace and peace come from God the Holy Spirit, who is designated in verse 4 as the seven spirits who are before his throne. John refers to the seven spirits on three other occasions. And in every case, he speaks about the Holy Spirit here, not angels. Some hold that uh, he's talking about angels here. This is the Holy Spirit of God. For grace and peace only come from God himself. No one else. Now, there are two possible meanings. First of all, John probably alludes to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. The sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the second possible meaning is that John most likely alludes to the lampstand with seven lamps in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2, which point to the truth that the temple is going to be built in verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Yahweh of hosts. The seven lamps, as we will see in Revelation 4, 5, are also said to be the seven spirits of God. And whatever the meaning, the specific meaning, since the number seven represents 
completion. John is speaking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Then third, grace and peace come from God the Son, who is designated here in the first part of verse 5, from Jesus Christ. This is the third reference to Jesus as the Christ in the first five verses. The word Christ is not his last name. Like we have a first and a last name. Christ is not his last name. The word Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. Therefore, the source of this greeting, grace to you and peace, comes from the triune God. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son, who all give validation to this divine revelation of the book of Revelation. This should give us absolute confidence that everything in this book will happen exactly as it says. Look again at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John now is wanting to extend a focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. These three titles for Christ allude to Messianic Psalm 89. The first title given to Jesus is the faithful witness. The word witness is the word from which we get our English word martyr. Although Jesus did not die as a mere martyr, he was certainly killed for being a faithful witness of the truth about who he is as the Son of God. Jesus was crucified for blasphemy. He claimed to be God. Many times I've heard people say, well, Jesus didn't claim to be God. Yes, he did. That's why he was killed. He was a faithful witness of the truth about who he was as well as God's righteous standards. Isaiah 55, 4 says that Messiah will be a witness to the peoples. Jesus himself is not only the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not only the truth. And the fact that he not only came to bear witness to the truth, but now he is a faithful witness to the truth of the book of Revelation. He is our supreme example of being a faithful witness of God's word, regardless of the cost. We live in a day and age where if we're going to take a stand for the word of God, there's going to be a cost. More and more in our society today, if we take a stand for what God's word says, that this is the inerrant, absolute truth, there's going to be a cost. And Jesus is our supreme example. The second title given to Jesus 
the firstborn of the dead. The word firstborn refers to the son that was the rightful heir of the inheritance. There were many who were raised from the dead. Many were raised from the dead, both in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But they all died again. That'd be a bummer. Once would be enough. However, Jesus is the first to rise again with a glorified body, fit for eternity, never to die again. That's what he's talking about, the firstborn of the dead. Therefore, he is the preeminent one. Since Jesus said in the last part of John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. We as believers should never fear death. Not saying we need to look forward to it or possibly the pain involved in it, but we never need to fear death. We can face it with confidence and with joy. Why? Because we know that to be absent from the body is to immediately be present, to be at home with the Lord. That's why when we do a Christian funeral, someone who has gone to be with the Lord, it's a celebration time. Yes, we mourn as people, as humans. We, our heart aches because of the loss, but we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Those who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, God has made it very clear in His Word. That without Christ, they will perish. It is only with Christ, when we repent of our sin, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we have eternal life. And those going into eternal life, it's a celebration. The third title given to Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. As the risen and glorified Christ, Jesus presently rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father, as we're told in His Word. And this book of Revelation is revealing to us that not only is He ruling and reigning now, but He is coming back as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords in fulfillment of the covenant promises made to David. And since Christ is sovereignly in control of everything, everything in our lives as well as in the world, we as believers must cling to the truth of the Word of God and not allow anything that is taking place, whether it's in our lives or happening in the world around us, to cause us to be anxious, to cause us to be fearful, we're told, be anxious for nothing. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He is sovereignly in control. 
And when we grab a hold of that truth and we anchor ourselves in the truth of the Word of God and we cling to that, it gives us the peace of God that surpasses comprehension. We should be biting our fingernails, and yet there's a sense of calmness, contentment, and well-being. The ninth introductory element of the book of Revelation is its exalted doxology. It's exalted doxology. Look at the second part of verse 5. To him who loves us. Now stop there. To him who loves us. Most doxologies in the New Testament are directed at God the Father. But this is directed to Jesus Christ. You see, John is so overwhelmed by the previous titles for Christ that he just bursts forth into a doxology. Doxology is a hymn of praise saying, to him who loves us. The perfect love of Jesus is selfless. It's sacrificial. It's other-centered. It has our best interests always in mind. And that was most greatly displayed when Jesus died on the cross on our behalf. As he's hanging there, he says, this much, I love you. However, the word loves here in this passage, it's the Greek word agape, the highest form of love, the love that God himself is. But it's in the present tense, not the past tense. Talking about the cross, it's in the present tense indicating that the same love that moved Jesus to give himself for us is presently and continually in force, actively working for us. How comforting it is to know that whatever God allows to touch our lives, for joy or for pain, Whatever he allows in his sovereign plan for us to touch our lives flows from his present love that is always working for our good and for his glory. As Romans 8, 35 through 39 says, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now notice three evidences of Christ's love for us. The first evidence in verse 5 is, and released us from our sins by his blood. Released us from our sins by his blood. Right here, there's no clearer summary of redemption in the Bible than this. The death of Jesus Christ purchased our release or our freedom from the penalty of sin and the slavery to sin by his blood. His blood, the phrase blood is a reference to the violent death that he paid on the cross. You see, this is the heart of the gospel. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of of His grace. The centrality of Christ's death as we go through Revelation is clear. 
chapter 5, verse 9, 7, 14, 12, 11. Again, the centrality of the death of Christ. And we will see that as we go. The second evidence in verse 6, he has made us to be a kingdom. Let's stop there. He's made us to be a kingdom. The word kingdom here is a collective designation for all believers in Christ. Though this does not mean that the church replaces the nation of Israel and the purposes of God. At the very moment of salvation, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, every believer enters the sphere of Christ's rule and His protection. Right now, and then the third evidence in verse 6 is that Christ has also made us to be, look what he says, priest to his God and Father. Priest to his God and Father. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we read, But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what we're theologians call the priesthood of the believer. Every believer is a priest. It means we have direct access to God. We don't have to go through man. We don't have to go through somebody else. We can come directly into his presence as subjects in Christ's kingdom. We're given the privilege of serving as priests as well as ruling with Christ, both now in shining the light of the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world, as well as in the future. The Jewish high priest could enter the Holy of Holies only once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's the only time he could go behind the veil and go in to be able to make sacrifice over the Ark of the Covenant once a year. And that was a high priest. No one else could. But we as believers, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his death, his burial, his resurrection... And making us children of God as we've repented of our sin and placed our faith in Him. We now have direct access into the very presence of God anytime and anywhere. That's why we see when Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent. It's torn in two. From top to bottom, God ripped the curtain that kept man out. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can pray, come to Him boldly anytime. And He bids us to come. Now, because of these three evidences of Christ's love for us, John again bursts forth at the end of verse 6, look what he says. To him, 
Christ be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. The fullness of Christ's glory and might will be clearly seen as we continue to go through the book of Revelation. And John's confident expression that all he has said thus far is true is seen in that little word, amen. Amen. Literally means, so let it be. That should also encourage your hearts. The first nine of ten introductory elements that are essential for us to understand the book of Revelation. We're just laying out the introduction here. We haven't even gotten into the, the meat of it, even though this in itself is full of meat. The first nine of ten introductory elements that are essential for us to understand the book of Revelation its appropriate title, its ultimate source, its specific recipients, its prophetic character, its angelic delivery, its human author, its promised blessing, its Trinitarian greeting, and its exalted doxology or hymn of praise to the one who has done all of this for us. Since Jesus gives this revelation of himself and the future to bless us, to comfort us, to encourage us as believers. We must not shy away from reading, from hearing, from keeping the prophetic message of this book. John is laying this out to introduce to us and to entice us, to give us incentive to dig in and to understand. And as we do, may we remember that it is only by the grace of God in our lives that we are what we are. And it's only by the grace of God that we can be all that God has intended for us to be. It's all by His grace.